The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Y'all ask for book recommendations. If you've never read the, it's called the hymn, the stories behind the hymns uh, for uh, what God did to inspire the words of some of those hymns. I would encourage you to pick that up at your local bookstore. Uh, great stories. I Surrender All definitely is one of those stories that is there. I invite your attention this morning to Philippians chapter 3. We're now entering the third chapter of our study through Philippians. We started 10 weeks ago, six of those weeks, of course, raining, as you know. But uh, we started this study, and this book, as you know, is about the, the gospel. It's about gospel joy, about coming together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at the sermon entitled Gospel-Centered Trust, and that's where we'll be headed today. You know, I must admit, this past week, I was quite speechless uh, as I watched a video unfold online. Many of you have seen this. Many of you may not have seen this. I'm not going to show the video, but I want to encapsulate it for you. Uh, the video was of an undercover uh, operation that was done in a L.A. restaurant with the director, the national medical director, Deborah Nukatola of Planned Parenthood. And during that meeting, she basically admitted to these prospective buyers who were actually undercover agents that they were selling babies' body parts after aborting children. And in the video, they suggested anywhere from $30 to $100 is being sold for anything from a liver to a brain to you fill in the blank. And they do this, they say, because they're running out of money and they're trying to break even on their ledger. So to do that, they started selling body parts of babies. It's crazy, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. You say, Darren, I didn't hear about this this week in the news. CBS, uh, you know, CNN, uh, any of the, the more uh, liberal, moderate places did not cover this. Fox News covered it. I'm not saying you should involve Fox News in all your life. But what I am saying is that she makes clear that the concern is not about hampering the harvesting of these organs or transferring of the organs, her concern is that they break even at the end of the day as a Planned Parenthood. Wow. If that does not shock your conscience, what does anymore? Isn't that just crazy? Uh, it, it's not only that infants in their mother's, mother's wombs are deprived of life, but now their corpses have been desecrated for profit right here, folks, in America, happening about this. It's not only murderous, it's mur murderous in the most ghoulish way. And it reminded me of a good scripture, and, and, and there is a point where this is going because of the trust factor. But it doesn't the scripture tell us this in Psalm 139, for, verses 35 to 37. My frame was not hidden from you, or 15, I'm sorry, 16 through 18. My frame was not hidden from you, the psalmist said, when I was being made in secret. I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast are the sum of them. Why do I bring this up? How does this relate to Philippians? A lot of people, even liberals, if you want to use the political word, said they put a trust in Planned Parenthood and now are shocked at what's happening behind the scenes and closed doors when people aren't around. Friends, how easily we can assume that all is okay in all part, places of this earth. I have to catch my words here. But how much is happening that we don't know about. Trust is a very vulnerable thing, isn't it? Trust is a very vulnerable, vulnerable thing. And friends, we stand on the fact that every life is precious. Amen? We believe that. That's why we don't support abortion. 
That's why we believe that God's Word says that every child is unique, and no matter if that child may have difficulties, our son is autistic, no matter if that child has difficulties, they, he or she is still precious in God's eyes. Let me say this as an aside before we move on with this trust issue because it, it, it's so much about the trust. Church, we need to pray that God would raise up witnessing to these people. It's time for the reborn to stand up for the unborn, isn't it? It's time for children not just to be another line item in an abortion ledger book, but that we are reminded that they share the same humanity that we read about of Jesus Christ in chapter 2 of Philippians. And we must plead for justice for them. Would you pray this week? A lot of people are saying, well, we keep trusting them, we keep trusting them. Friend, that trust was broke the very time they aborted one baby. Do you realize that 56 million babies across this nation have been aborted since Roe v. Wade in 1971? It's crazy. That's more than World War II deaths almost combined across the time. Say, well, Darren, what does this mean about trust? Well, your worldview informs about how you live your life, doesn't it? The way you view how you were created views about how you will view every other aspect of life. If you believe you're just a molten lava of mass that came to be and you weren't created by God's hand, you're going to live like a molten mass of lava that came to be and not as one as God's hand. And friends, we have a group today spiritually that we're going to study in Philippians that were doing a very similar thing, not as grotesque as murdering babies, but they were committing spiritual murder in a lot of ways. They were telling people that to be a Christian, you had to do certain things, have to continue to live out the law, have to continue to be uh, this Jewish person to the nth degree, and there was a trust that was established. But these people laid upon these Christians at Philippi a burden that was not theirs to bear, and that trust was broken. The big idea I want to get across to you today is this. The gospel doesn't call us to trust and receive Christ as an addition to our life, but as our life. Amen? Friends, and when we talk about babies, we talk about spiritual maturity, spiritual leadership, what an enormous comfort it is to know that our king is alive today, seated in heaven, interceding for us. And someday we can trust him perfectly because he is going to set all things right. And that line in the sand that seems so gray right now in this world is going to be set firmly and there's no turning back. You either know Christ or you don't know Christ. Are you looking forward to that day? What a great God that we serve. Gospel-centered trust is this. This is what a biblical trust is, not trust that turns things the other way, but biblical gospel-centered trust is this. You ready? Philippians 3, 1 through 11, three things. First, you're to put no trust in your spiritual adversaries. We'll see that in verses 1 through 3. We'll also see in verse 2 that we're to place no trust in our self-achievements. If you were to watch this video, just as an aside, uh, Dr. Nakaloa will tell you that this was one of the greatest things that she's done in her life, was to find a way to continue to fund Planned Parenthood's that are unfunded at this time by harvesting the organs of babies. It's just ridiculous. But friends, we can trust all of our Savior's accomplishments because he is always faithful. Amen? And today, we're going to look at some people called the Judaizers. These were people who that the communities thought they could trust. They said, if you believe Jesus, great, but all you have to do is add all the Old Testament laws onto that and you'll be good. But they were murdering people spiritually just like these babies have been aborted and there was a trust factor that was broken but Paul is going to establish where true trust comes in and we'll see that in Philippians 3 1 through 11 let's stand if you're able this morning for the reading of God's word and we will read from uh, the New American Standard uh, many of y'all ask what version I use I, I flip back and forth uh, New American Standard has been my choice the last few weeks so we'll read through that today verses 1 and following Paul says finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord so to write the same things to you again is of no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. 
Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. For if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Or perhaps your Bible may say perfect at the end of verse 6. Here's the catch. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to loss in view of the surpassing value or greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, that's Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the reading, hearing, and doing of his word. It's an amazing word. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we know that we have no doubt, even before we stepped in this week, that uh, places like Planned Parenthood do, do terrible things to young babies. But Father, it's amazing that even those who say they trust such places have lost trust in those things. Father, I pray that as we look at your character today through the uh, writings of Paul, that we are reaffirmed and reassured today that the trust of trusting Christ as Savior, the trust of trusting you for every need of our lives is as sure as, this, as your character is sure. Because, Father, you are ever faithful, ever true, ever good. And, Father, no matter what we face today, whether it's the terribleness of what's happened this last week behind the scenes or it's something as minute as trying to get a kid to go to sleep at night, Lord, you are a faithful, good God. Lord, may our trust be in all of your accomplishments and not in our adversaries, not in our achievements, but all of you. That's our prayer today, Lord. Thank you that you are worthy because you are the one who was slain for us that we might have life. So grateful are we. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we open this up, uh, the first thing I want to say is just to repeat that. We're going to, I usually put up a little sentence or something about a faith lesson or such. This, this is a meaty package. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you my outline and uh, you may just have to jot down some other notes as you go. Uh, I'm just going to give you the outline for sake of time. But the first thing we see here is Paul tells these Philippians not to trust the Judaizers. These people who are Jews who, who say you have to have the, the good works plus Jesus equals salvation. He says, don't trust them. He, the first thing he says is he says they are dishonest. Look at verse 1. He says, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you, especially that last phrase. You know, there's no smiley face to put on this. When you are around false teaching, it is everywhere. For it goes into every crevice. But as believers, we must remember that God is sovereign even over false teaching, that God can use even the worst circumstances to turn it around for his glory. So Paul tells them to rejoice. Rejoice. Who's to rejoice? He says it in verse 1. He says, my brethren... Uh, literally brothers and sisters. It's a Delphoi, it's a plural, it includes the ladies and the men together to rejoice. Rejoice in whom? Rejoicing the Lord. Contrary to these false teachers who don't know the Lord, they can rejoice that they know the God of your salvation. When you have no reason to rejoice this week, remember, God is still good and he's still on his throne. 
Why are they to rejoice? He tells them because you have union with Christ. You have been given the, 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 the true faith in Jesus Christ. And when are you to rejoice? Always. That's verse 4 of chapter 4. You are to rejoice always in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. But Paul tells them that these false teachers are dishonest because that last phrase is a safeguard to them. A service for the good of others is no trouble to him. You know what the importance of safeguarding the church is from? Part of the, my job as a pastor, you don't see this written in the job description. It's, it's there, but it's, it's to protect against false teaching. Paul tells them, look, Philippians, I have no trouble telling you again and again and again who our Lord Jesus is. Again and again and again what the gospel is. Again and again and again why we believe what we believe. Because these false teachers are coming and telling you to do other things that you don't need to do. That's why he says don't put trust in your adversaries. And friends, how do we safeguard this church? It's by teaching doctrine. Uh, if you're on our, our, our email list or our Facebook page, you know on Tuesdays we do a thing called Theology Tuesday. Sounds like an academic head rush trip, uh, something like that. But what it's meant to do is to encourage you to dig deeper into your faith about a certain topic. Many of you have submitted questions to the Ask the Pastor box. If you have a question, put it in the box, email us, talk to us. We want to answer it the best we can. But Paul is telling them that it's no trouble for me to remind you to not put your trust in these people. Put your trust in what the Bible says, what God has told me to tell you. Why also does he tell them not to trust them? Because they're dangerous. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Some of you all may have that phrase, look out for. Does anyone have that in your Bible? Or watch out for. Or beware. Paul uses it three times. If your mama told you to do something three times, you better be doing it by the second time. And the third time, we don't know what's going to happen, right? Is that not true? Paul tells him three times, watch out. Watch out, watch out. He's describing the same group of people, these people, the Judaizers, the ones who are trying to add on things to Jesus. But from Paul's perspective and from the Bible's perspective, their, their claims are false. So he says, watch out for them, they're dangerous. Why? Three reasons. He says they're dogs. Basically, they possess an unworthy character. Uh, just like today, if you were to call someone a dog, that's not a compliment, right? You don't just go up to your boss and say, hey, dog. I mean, you just don't do that. That's not good. If you do, you might be getting the pink slip before you know it. But one thing, in the, in the Jewish mind, a dog was well known for feeding on, on, on scavengers, uh, scavenger filth and garbage. So when Paul tells them that they are dogs, he's basically saying, look, these people are not God's people. Beware, look out, watch out. They're not God's people. They're dangerous. He goes on, he says, they're evil workers. This describes their ungodly conduct. Though they, the Judaizers, the people adding on to Jesus, thought they were doing good, the outcome was very deadly. Friends, we see this all the time. With respect to people to believe what they believe, we see this in Mormonism, with Muslims, with any other religion outside of Christ. People who sincerely are doing things, but unfortunately, they're not through Christ. They're not in the biblical Christ. And these Judaizers prided themselves in the working out what the law said. Their hearts were set in the right place, but their works were offensive to God because they were not through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, he said, they're unworthy characters, they're ungodly conduct, but they also promote unrestrained confusion. Did you check the end of verse 2? He says, they're a false circumcision. Many of you who've been around the Bible know that in the Old Testament, God set up through Abraham circumcision as a sign to the Jewish people to designate them from everyone else. 
Just having signs, not enough. There's nothing special for those without faith in God. These people had physically done an act, but their hearts were far from the God of the Bible. Friends, it's a reminder today that salvation is an inward operation of the Holy Spirit. You can, you can try hard, you can work hard, you can do all these things, but unless God so works in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will never be saved. But Paul tells us in later chapters that we are the spiritual circumcision. God has taken that, that raw, nasty, sin-filled, wretched, rebellious heart we are outside of Christ, and he has circumcised it so that we may know his son through faith alone in Christ alone. Can you spot these people in your life? These people may be on TV. They may be your next-door neighbor. They may be anyone who knocks on your door. They may be anyone who tells you that Jesus Christ is simply not enough. Those are the people that Paul is talking about broadly, specifically in this passage. Man, be careful. They are dangerous. They are, they are dishonest. Lastly, look at verse 3. They're deceived. Don't put your trust in them. Look at verse 3. He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory or exalt or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. If these outward signs do not make you a Christian, Paul says, what did? What does? Well, Paul gives you three reasons. Let's go through them quickly. He says that genuine Christians are devoted to worship in the Spirit. And despite what every other religion advocates, they cannot worship God. Friends, do not be deceived by popular things that say if we all just come together, we all hold hands, we all worship the same God. It's very popular today, you've probably heard this, in light of radical uh, Islam, that we somehow worship the same God as the Muslims. Friends, that is, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. We do not. Do you realize that they don't even believe that Jesus is a, the Savior of the world? They believe he's just another prophet or, or, or a glorified man. They don't even believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe that Judas died in Jesus' place. That is not found anywhere in the scriptures. And Paul is telling these people that don't be deceived. The only way you worship is you worship in spirit and in truth through the Son, Jesus Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you have no true worship. Let me just put it that way. Why? Because it's always been about the heart, not about the outward keeping of the law. In the new covenant, God writes the law upon our hearts. Go read Romans chapter 8. It's all there. And it's God, is God's law in your heart today? If you're not a Christian here today, so glad you're here. You're always welcome at Tower View, but do you know Christ? Christian, can I ask you before we move on to the next two, did God accept your worship today? I challenge you to show up, sing, listen, and leave with the right heart. Sometimes we get so busy before service, and your pastor included in this, that we are very guilty that we just rush into worship. Did you pray this morning? that God would work through the worship that you have. He says, look, don't be deceived. Only those who have the Spirit can worship correctly. And now Paul goes on to say that genuine Christians have a boasting about their Savior. They boast in their Savior. They exult in their Savior. They brag on their Savior. Look at verse 3 again. He says, those who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Friends, is it wrong for a Christian to be boastful? Not if you're boasting in the gospel, it's not. How does a Christian boast? Do I go out and say, man, look at me. I went to church for 52 straight weeks. I got the check marks. I brought my Bible. I brought my tithe. I brought my uh, whatever. I, you, so y'all, the older members, remember those check boxes you used to do when you go? There's nothing wrong with that. But Paul's not saying you rejoice in those things. You rejoice in the gospel of Jesus 
Christ? Do you boast in your Savior? Do you boast in Him? Paul says that makes you a genuine believer if you delight to boast in Him. He also says don't be deceived. Genuine believers deny works for salvation. Look at the end of verse 3. Put no confidence in the flesh. Isaiah 2 says don't trust man whose breath, whose life is like a breath, a, a nose full of nostril uh, of air. Friends, these Judaizers were going to take every opportunity to teach these people that they had to do good works to get to heaven. Do not believe that. Christian, if you're here today, rejoice in the fact that you are not good enough to get to heaven, but it was you were saved by works of another person. Did you ever think about that before? You're not saved by works, but you're saved by the work of another. His name is Jesus Christ. He did it perfectly. He did it wholly. He did it all unto God's glory. What separates biblical Christianity from every other religion in this world is that we believe you are not saved by what you do. You're saved by what he did. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that today? And can I ask you, are you praying for spiritual discernment in an age that we live in today? Three weeks ago, it was the Supreme Court. This week, it's aborted baby. What's it going to be next week? Who knows? Sin is rampant. You know, we, I love sci-fi. I don't, some of you love sci-fi movies. Some of you all love that stuff. You know, there's always that thought in sci-fi movies. They don't come out and say it, but maybe if we can just go to another planet somewhere far away and start over, it would all be better. Boy, that doctrine of original sin comes up all the time, doesn't it? Because you know what? Whether you start here or there, at some point we're going to mess it up again. But thank God Christ is our perfect righteousness and he came to save us. And that is why we don't trust spiritual adversaries. We don't trust them. Do you know him today? Let's go on to the second one. Paul says, don't trust your spiritual adversaries. Secondly, place no trust in self-achievement. No trust in self-achievement. Uh, Paul gave you a resume list. Some of you all have reviewed resumes before. Some of you all are making resumes. You know, you kind of feel weird as a Christian because you're like, I got to show what I did, but I don't want to do it pridefully. Well, Paul just says, look at my former life. Here's what Paul is. He kind of adds it up like, like, a, like a ledger sheet in a good way, sort of a good way. He says, these are what I used to be, but here's the losses that come through. And his losses column can come into two headings. He has advantages that were his by birth and those he attained as we go through. Let's go through them. But look, place no trust in yourself because salvation, you cannot trust. You, first off, your rituals. Look at verse 5. You can't trust your rituals. He says, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Friends, he was just by the book. Paul was by the book. When his parents went to, to circumcise him, it was exactly what they were supposed to do by the Old Testament law. And circumcision was meant to remind that Abraham was saved by believing in God. It was a sign. It wasn't salvation. It was a sign. But taken literally... The text can read, if, if I understand the Greek correctly, Mitch, uh, Mitch will have to correct me on this. He's better at Greek than I am. But it, it literally can read, with respect to circumcision, he's an eighth-dayer. And Paul just lays it out there. Look, I was there on the eighth day just like they told me to. I turned in my taxes on time, so to speak. I did it all by the book. And Paul's a true Jew, and he throws us out there. He throws it out there. But what a reminder today that we are not saved by our rituals. I don't care how many Hail Marys you pray. Care how many times you rub the rosary beads? I don't care if you're in India and you go and bathe in the the the, the rivers there. I, whatever rituals you bring to it, it means nothing as far as Christ is concerned. Paul says it was nothing. We'll get down there. He says, secondly, he says you can't trust your race for salvation. Yes, I just used the four-letter word. You cannot trust your race for salvation. He says the next privilege was I'm an Israelite by birth. He says I was born as an Israelite. 
against the possibility that perhaps his, his parents were Gentiles, Paul just says, no, I've, I'm a pure Israelite. I was exactly what I was told to be. Not only is he in line with Abraham and Isaac, but he's also the pure line of Jacob. You know, it's like that story uh, about the New England rabbi and the New England pastor. Uh, the, the minister or pastor went up and said, one of my ancestors signed the Declaration of Independence. And the rabbi said to him, well, one of mine signed the Ten Commandments. And <laughs> I, I understand your pride, but he signed the Ten Commandments. You know, unfortunately, there are many people today who think that for some reason their nationality will save them. Look, I, I, that old hymn, red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight, really comes to mind when I think about this. Friends, you want to solve the race problem, you have to solve the sin problem first off. That starts with us, that starts with everyone in this country, it goes back to this fact. But Paul says, look, I used to trust that I had the right race and I was okay. And then he goes on, he said, not only the right race, he goes on, he says, but I was born in the tribe of Benjamin. If you know your Bible history, this was the smallest tribe out there, the smallest tribe. And when the Jews got sent off for their sin to uh, Persia, there was a lot of intermarrying and a lot of people lost their family lineage. But Paul comes back and says, no. He says, my family has been pure through all this time. I had it down. What a reminder to us today that your salvation is not derived from simply being a pastor's kid or a missionary kid. Or I, I heard someone tell me on the streets before uh, his dad was a pastor in Columbia. One of the first nights I witnessed in Westport, he's drunk as a skunk. He said, well, I, my dad's a pastor, and I know I'm going to be okay on Judgment Day. That's where you are today. Don't trust in your self-achievements. Don't trust in your parents' achievements. Children, you must personally repent of your sin and trust Christ as Savior, just as your parents have if they're Christian. You must believe that. But Paul said, look, I, I used to trust that I, my race was right. I was Israelite. I was Benjamin. And finally, he says it. Did you catch this phrase? He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's like saying I'm the most blood uh, patriotic American of blood patriotic Americans. That's basically what he's saying. And he goes on to say that uh, basically what Paul is saying is that he observed the national way of Jewish life. He observed the law, but he observed all the customs. He was perfect in all this stuff. He was perfect in all of it. But do you know today that there are many people who have the name D.R. period after their name that know more about this Bible than you and I know, head knowledge-wise, but who have no trust in the correct Savior. They're trusting that their pedigree of, as a doctor philosophy or religion will get them to heaven someday. Paul says you can't trust your race. You can't trust your rituals. You can't do any of that. What you have to trust is Jesus Christ. Amen? He goes on. He says you can't trust your religion for salvation. You can't trust your religion. Look at verse 6. He says, according to, or into verse 5 into 6, he says, as to the law of Pharisee. Pharisees were the law keepers of law keepers. Man, if you wanted to know how to live the Jewish life, go talk to a Pharisee basically what it was. But all of our law-keeping friends and self-denial is nothing unless it's been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the truth. Salvation is not earned by tradition, nor salvation earned by sincerity. Salvation is earned by faith alone in Christ alone with a trust that's exclusive to what Jesus did. And Paul said, look, I was a Pharisee. I kept all the, the laws of the Old Testament, all 614, but I also kept all the hundreds of laws the Pharisees came up with on top of that. And then he goes on, he says, the next thing he says is, according to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Not only was he genuine in his religious beliefs, he had a zeal for God. He had a zeal for the temple. He had a zeal for the law, a passion for it. And Paul tells us that he far exceeded his zeal. 
to defend his convictions. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This was the if you wanted an MVP on your, your Jewish team, choose Paul. He's the man. But you know what? He also persecuted the church. We don't know if Paul himself ever physically killed Christians, but we know he gave the orders to. And despite his sincerity, however, he was dead wrong, wasn't he? And friends, the world is full of people who, like Paul, are very, very sincere. You know people like this. They're in your office. They're in your neighborhood. They're all over the place. But it's only an encounter with the living Jesus Christ that Paul found uh, that turned that all around. Are you praying, Christian, for your friends to have an inside-out, upside-down, topsy-turvy gospel encounter this week? Paul had it happen. He got knocked off a horse. And that's how it happened. Paul says, don't trust your race. Don't trust your ritual. Don't trust your religion. Can I throw another R at you? Don't trust your righteousness. Look at verse 6 again. He says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Now let me be very clear here. Paul's not saying that he was perfect. He's not saying that he lived a life without sin. Go look at Romans 7. You can see that he did not say that. Uh, but by all outward appearances, Paul would have been the model Jew. If you had a little kid and you wanted a role model back in that day, and don't we need role models today? Yes, we do. We need a role model. We'd look at Paul and say, son, I want you to be just like the Pharisee Paul. Be just like him. He's like that guy in Luke 18, the young rich ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And what did the guy say? He said, well, I kept all those since I was a kid. And that's what the Jews thought. They didn't think they were sinless, but as long as they kept the commandments, they thought they were good. And what Paul is saying here is that he thought his righteousness, his law-keeping was enough. What he says in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Friends, I'll be quite honest with you. I, 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 you may agree with this. We can, you may not. I don't know. But there are many unconverted people who outwardly live a more righteous life than some Christians. Do you agree with that? I think it's true. I had a friend in college who, uh, his name's Nathan. I won't get his last name as it's going online, but uh, he, was, he was a resident of mine at William Jewell when I was a resident assistant. This guy was giving out money to his bank account to people who needed books to buy. I mean, just giving out money. He was not rich. He was giving things out. Atheist. He would walk in our room and just mock God all the time. But you know what? He gave more sacrificially, and I had to look at my own heart and think, I love the Lord, and I'm not giving as much as this guy. And that's what Paul's basically saying. He's saying, look, I did everything according to the law, just as God said. And if there's anyone that was right with God, it was Paul. He was the MVP. He was the superstar. He was the all-star. The Royals brought seven all-stars to the game. Paul could have beaten them all up with a stick. He was that good about what he did. And I'm quite certain that there are many people today who think that same thing. If I just give it my best, give it the old college try, if I try and live the best life I can, well, isn't God going to look at me on Judgment Day and just say, man, you gave it your best shot. That must be the best thing ever. You know, as I, I've taught college classes before, and I hate this part of the semester. If you're a student that did this, I love you, but I hated this part of the semester. The last week of class, kids would come up to you who hadn't been to class, all, I taught online, who hadn't turned in things for weeks. Well, well, Professor Smith, I just have to, I have to get a passing grade, or else I'm going gonna, gonna to get my scholarship. Well, let's see, you haven't turned in this, 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 this. Well, is there any extra credit to do? Now, come on, some of you all did this as kids, and maybe you still do this at work. I don't know. But Paul thought that way. He thought that if he just gave it his best and did his best, that he would someday get it right. But Paul didn't need the extra credit. He was earning extra credit for everyone else. He was that, that into it. But friends, when it comes down to it, there's no extra credit you can earn with God. 
It is not by your race, rituals, religion, or righteousness. It is through Christ. Aren't you grateful for that today, Christian, that you have faith in Christ and not your own works? That someday God doesn't take a big balancing act like Muslims believe and he'll throw your good deeds on one, the Muslims say, and your bad deeds on another. And, and somehow if you make it work, that God doesn't do that. Paul says, don't trust your self-achievements because there's nothing good in you except what God has given you. Isn't that a great thing? Would you pray that as you serve this church that you don't do it just to get a check mark by your name and say, hey, good job. We'll encourage you, serve. But pray that you have the right heart when you serve, not to get favor with God, but to serve God and advance his kingdom. That's what Paul says. Don't trust your spiritual adversaries. Don't trust your self-achievement. But Paul does say this, and this is where we land the plane. Number three, we place all our trust, all our trust in our Savior's accomplishments. Look back at verses 7 through 11. Before we get there, actually, let me say it this way. Have you ever tried to take a permanent marker and mark something and try and erase it with a pencil? Ever done that before? Some of you all have kids. We fear this at our house, I think. Uh, uh, our son getting a hold of a permanent marker and just going across, you know, doing doodling through our house on our white walls. But, you know, if you've ever tried to erase it with a, a, a pencil, you know that's not going to work. And you can't go on Shark Tank and tell me you're going to get a bid from Mark Cuban to give you money for that if you're in a Shark Tank. You're never going to do it. It's not possible. You can't erase permanent marker with an eraser. But imagine every single person was born in this world with the, the phrase M-E, me, attached on their heart. And no matter how good you try and erase that me from you, it doesn't go away, does it? That's what Paul found. He found that he tried to do everything possible religiously with his race, with his rituals, with everything, and yet nothing could happen. What he needed was a new heart with Christ. He needed to trust all, he needed to be all in with Christ. First thing I want you to see, verses 7 and 8. If you are a Christian, you must place all your trust in our Savior because he is the one whose privilege we enjoy. It's our reward. His privilege is our reward. Look back at 7 and 8. Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He says we enjoy the privilege of his reward. First off, for the sake of Christ. Christ is the person who's of supreme worth and affection and love. And he had become the center of Paul's life, no doubt about it. Forget all that stuff, it's now Paul. Can I ask you, if God took everything away from you like he did Job, and all you had left was Christ, would you be satisfied with that? Would you be content with that? If God were to take away your great house, your great car, your great family, whatever it is, and make you the scum of the earth, if I can say such a phrase, me the scum of the earth, could you still, could I still rejoice that we had Jesus Christ? Uh, there's an old story of the Puritans, those old dead guys I like to study and look at, and the Puritans sat down for lunch with only bread and water. It was a scarce time in their time. And he said, what? He said, all of this, the bread and water, and Christ too, happy day. That's what he said. This is what makes Philippians a letter of joy, is that Christ is with us. Our hands were created only to grip one thing, Christ, for the sake of Christ. Take it to the Lord. Give us more of Christ, Father. Take all of our losses and give us more gain, Father, for Christ's sake. And Paul says, look, it's all in the past because it's now for Christ. But lest anyone think salvation is a one-time decision, Paul informs us in verse 8 of his decision to count former things as loss. That was no impulsive act of breaking it. No, his decision to follow Christ was a deep, 
deep-seated resolution. It wasn't a whimsical walking down the aisle praying a prayer. Paul counted it all as lost because he knew there is no other treasure except in Jesus Christ for the sake of Christ. Is that where you are today? Look at verse 8. Guys, he uses this word, and I'm just being very honest with you. If you were to look at this word, how many have the word dung in verse 8? Verse 8, anyone? Rubbish? Verse 8, some of you all have that. Let me just be very honest with you. That is everything you think it is, and it's everything more than it is. It is every, that picture you're getting in your head about dung and rubbish is exactly what it is. I'm not going to paint that brush further from the pulpit. You fill in the blank. Do you understand what Paul is saying about his, his life? For the sake of Christ, the privilege of his reward, Paul knew that everything he was before was nothing. Isaiah 64, 6, very famous verse. Uh, God considers our good deeds to be like what? Filthy rags. Is nothing more than an unclean menstruation rag, if I can throw that out. Use tampon, use today's language. That's what Paul thought of his former life and his sin. And he knew the privilege of having Christ. Paul wanted more than just a ticket out of hell. Paul wanted Jesus Christ. That's what makes salvation so sweet, isn't it? It's there more than a, uh, a mere avoidance of punishment. Paul didn't just want to go and get punished in hell by God's wrath. No, salvation is gloriously knowing Christ. John Piper got it right when he said, God is the gospel. If you want to know gospel someday, know God. This is why we don't present Jesus, Christians, when we evangelize. It's just a way out of your present circumstances. Look, if they don't want to worship Christ here, they're not going to worship Christ there. Isn't that the truth? If they don't want to believe in the Jesus now, what in the world do we think they're going to believe when they get there? That is what we're going to be doing, Christians. A glorious thing. We're worshiping around his throne. He says, that old hymn, Meg, uh, we'll have to play this one offertory time. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. That great old hymn. He is everything to me. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Knowing Je- Jesus and knowing Jesus. Knowing, uh, let's say it again. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus are not the same thing. One true look at Jesus' beauty and you will see all that Paul saw. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you today. Is there a sin in your life? that you need to take before the beauty of God and let it evaporate in confession and repentance? Is there something in your life that you've forgotten to take before his throne? Paul took a former life and threw it at the the shredder of God's gospel and watched it all go up in flames. You say, Darren, I did that when I became a Christian, but are you doing that today? You see, and it's famously said, but if you have a new relationship with Christ, you should have a new relationship with sin. Because the sin that goes on in your life is a testimony of whether you know Christ or you don't. Your hands were not made to cling to anything but Christ. So he says that's the privilege. That's the privilege. But he also says we need to experience the prize of his righteousness. The prize of his righteousness. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. And may be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is from faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Where do we get the treasure of knowing Christ? Why is it surpassing greatness? Because it comes from God. Let me give you three quick reasons why. First off, it comes from God. That's your treasure. It comes from God. He wants a righteousness, Paul does, from God. A righteousness that needs to experience the greatest treasure, and that's fellowship with God. Look, we're going to have, we're praying through as we uh, talk about uh, changes in our church. We're going to do a lot of things probably over the years. But friends, don't forget, programs are not why you come to this church. The cool donuts. Whoever brought the donuts today, thank you. Uh, that's a lot of sugar I needed today for uh, early morning at home. Those are great. 
The things we do here are great, but the fellowship with God in worship, study, and all those things is the, is the best thing that we have, the greatest thing that we have. The righteousness that did not come from Paul, it comes from God. It's a gift to be received, not a thing to be gained. It's a gift given, not a thing to be earned. It comes from God. How do we experience the prize of this righteousness? It's from God, first off. But boy, notice that it comes through faith in Christ. Dave, you mentioned this in our prayer, our guys' prayer time, whatever we call it when we pray in the pastor's office. Faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith, just so you know, many of y'all are Indiana Jones fans. You like the third Indiana Jones where he's going back, I think, to get the Holy Grail and drink the water to live forever. And there's a scene where he, he you know, he steps, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. He steps out and he's trying to find the ledge and he does one of those things. That's not what faith is. Faith is not a blind step out onto something you hope you fall on. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the things in God, in Christ. Faith is an absolute thing. And Paul says, look, you stretch out your hands and say, yes, Lord, I receive it. I trust in you. I don't trust in myself. It's all by faith in Christ. Friends, with respect to our Catholic friends, this is why we broke away 500 years ago. Do you realize that? We broke away because they were doing just like the Judaizers are. They say if you keep certain laws and do penance and, and pray certain prayers, you might end up in purgatory, which is completely false, or you might end up in heaven. Friends, there's nothing we bring to the table. It's all Christ, faith in him. How do you experience this prize? You've got to remember it comes from God. You've got to remember it comes through faith in Christ. And you've got to remember it's not your own. Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. In other words, it's nothing in you. It's nothing in me. It's, nothing, it's not about cleaning your act up. It's not about uh, trying to do something in the church to make yourself better. It's not going to the pastor's office every day. I love to see you. Please visit. Well, it's not about visiting the pastor all the time, hoping that by being close to the pastor, you're closer to God. Look, I don't have a red phone in my office. I wish I did just to call up God and say, hey, uh, Steve Braden's been visiting my office. Bless him today. That's not the case. It comes by Jesus Christ. It's all been accomplished in him. Some of you may struggle with whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let me start in verse 9. Your hope, your confidence, your assurance is not based on anything in you. Nothing in you. Absolutely nothing. It's based on something outside of you. Luther, the great reformer, said it was the alien righteousness which has been offered to you, which you receive by faith in him. Friends, that is how you experience it. It is by faith in him. How do you experience God on a daily basis? Are you praying to him in faith for your answers? How do you experience God on a daily basis at work? Are you trusting that your faith in him is not just mere words, you're babbling? Are you praying that God would use you where you're at? That's what he says. Last thing is this, and we'll close. He says, look, experience the privilege of his reward. Experience the prize of his righteousness. Trust all in the Savior, but expect the promise of resurrection. Verse 10. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. You want a prayer that's going to transform your life, Christian? Pray this prayer. Put this up on your, your mirror. Put this in your smartphone. Put this, whatever you do to go around, pray this prayer. That you would know him, Christ, and the power of him, Christ's resurrection. He says, I want to live by resurrection power. He doesn't say, God saved me by grace. Now the rest is my job. No. He says, I'm going to pursue that prize of knowing Christ by resurrection power. He says, I need a pride-humbling, sin-conquering, Christ-exalting power that only comes through what Christ did in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is resurrection power. Friends, he says, that's how you discover his strength. You discover his strength by praying that God would use resurrection power. Look, you're not going to go out and you're not going to 
You're not just going to click your fingers or tap your heels like I, what was that? Uh, I Love Jeannie. What, what was the movie? Bewitched? Is that what it was? Some of y'all looking around. What was that show? Bewitched. Thank you. You're not just going to snap and, you know, whatever her name comes that. No, it, it's not what it is. But what he is saying, though, is that to live by his resurrection power starts with a daily need to remind yourself of where you've come from and where God saved you and where he's going. And that is in the power of the resurrection. He says, how do you expect the promise? You discover his strength. He goes on in verse 10. You've got to share in his sufferings. Look at verse 10 again quickly. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Friends, again, we have a radically different view as Christians than most religions about suffering. We know that the day is coming when suffering will be no more. We know that. We know that even in suffering, God loves us and is near to us. And there's so much more. Go read Romans 8. That's a great chapter for many things we talked about today. But in this passage, Paul says something even more. He's saying not that he wants to suffer. Paul's not a, uh, is the right word I think here, masochist. Paul's not a guy, they used to have guys in the 13th century who would walk around with those, those whips and they'd whip themselves because they thought they whipped themselves, they would get closer to God. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's not crazy. Look, nobody wants to suffer in here. If I asked you, do you want to suffer? Uh, you would say no, hopefully. But what he does say is, I want to share in the Lord's sufferings because I'm becoming more like him. If Jesus, our great high priest, learned obedience through suffering, and he did, look at Hebrews 5. That means we also are made like him through suffering. And Paul says, how do you live if you've been saved by grace? You look suffering square in the eye and you say this, look, God, don't waste a drop of my suffering. I want to make this count for being made more like Jesus. Doesn't that turn how we often view suffering and our prayers for people suffering in the eye? Last thing is this. He says, how do you experience this? You attain salvation. He says in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I'm never going to be satisfied with anything in this life, ever, with what I am now. I'm never going to reach perfection here. Remember, Paul tried that. He tried that through the law. He tried it before. It didn't work. What he says he's looking for is something that's never going to be completed except on that day. Christian, you may look at your life, and you may have been a Christian for years, or maybe just a few years. You may look at your life and say, God, I haven't made as much progress with you or I haven't gotten as far with you as I have wanted to or hoped to. But I pray that if you're a Christian, you can say, I look at my life and I see that God is working through my sin to glorify his name more. Or God's using my suffering. Even though I don't feel as close to him, God, you're using that to make me closer. Friends, is this how you approach the Christian life? Are you comfortable in your sin? Are you lazy in your spiritual growth? Am I Am I asking myself these questions? Are you surprised by suffering? Are you longing for the resurrection? Or would you just as well that it would be postponed so that you can find satisfaction here in this life? Friends, if you want to know more of Jesus, know more of him through suffering. And again, as we said a couple of weeks ago, this doesn't mean you go out, and if I can use the word, it doesn't mean you be a jerk for Jesus. You don't go out and you just upset people because you're a Christian and, and you're just going to go and, look, speak the truth, speak the truth in love, but be bold. How do you walk that line? Again, you pray that God would give you that balance. Parents, you know this. You know this very much. We're, you know, we're learning this with our, uh, our terrible two stage with Simeon. Of where's that balance between truth and love and all that stuff? Parents, you get this. Some of you managers at work, you know this. You know that guy who's causing you trouble at work. You just want to fire, has a family and friends. They're staying with them. They're the only source of income. But you know you've got to straighten them out. 
How do you walk that line? You pray for wisdom. Friends, I pray today, if anything else, we learn something from the Apostle Paul. Can't trust this society. Look, we're coming up to an election year, and, and we, we're not, I'm not endorsing any candidates. We can't do that legally or otherwise. I'm not trying to do that. But what I am telling you, friends, is no matter who we vote in the White House, no matter who we put in the governor's seat, no matter what we do, unless our hearts as Christians are set on trusting all with Jesus Christ, it means nothing. Do you believe that? We pray for this nation. Pray for those babies. Pray for those families. If you have grandkids tonight, thank God that you have someone who's alive. Friends, you pray this week that the gospel goes forth. You say, Darren, I don't have an article about it. I'll post something on my Facebook. Look, guys, it's serious out there. We have a serious Savior who seriously loves people, who seriously gave his life for people. Isn't that an amazing thing? What a great God we serve. Let's pray today. God, I thank you so much, Father, for the, the fact that we can pray and, and know you. Father, I, I thank you that a gospel-centered trust is one that we trust to receive you, not just as something to add on to our life like the Judaizers and even Paul tried to do to some extent. But, Father, you are our life or you're not. He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. Father, I would ask very much, very clearly, uh, specifically, Father, that you would show us our sin in our lives. Lord, it's not just to rid sin, to, to be a better moral person. It's to become more like Jesus. Oh, how we love Jesus, Father, because he first loved us. Lord, I would ask today that you would give great wisdom to us, that we would look at our lives and ask the question, are we trusting fully in every detail of our lives to you and to your son by faith in him alone, for his glory alone, for his name alone? Father, I would also pray for anyone in this room who does not know Christ, that, Father, it's not by race or ritual, religion or righteousness, it's not by anything other than the blood of your Son, fully, perfectly shed on Calvary, but atoned in our hearts by the Spirit and the circumcision of our hearts. Lord, be with that person today if they need Christ. May you work in their hearts. Lord, you're so good to us. Thank you for this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.